Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we have an award-winning photographer. She's an event venue owner, an author, and a survivor who was on the brink of suicide. Her marriage was crumbling around her. Her friendships were devoured in lies. The self-hatred and the childhood trauma realizations hit her hard. She made a concerted choice to rebuild her life. She made the hardest decision of her life to turn tragedy into triumph. This sounds like a true life soap opera. It kind of is. Stay tuned. You're going to hear that story from the person that lived it and through it. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About The Road to Happiness Isn't Always Paved. My guest in this episode is Jacqueline Phillips. She is an award-winning photographer in the event owner. She's an author and a survivor who was on the brink of suicide, as I said. She decided to take her life back. She's going to help us understand how she faced the origins of her self-hatred. She dealt with her childhood trauma. She freed herself from the burden of what she grew up with and how she rebuilt the foundations of her marriage. And she wants to make sure that you have the opportunity to do that, too. Welcome to the show, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me. This is an amazing opportunity. You know, I, uh, your journey is unlike uh, uh, others, but yours is very unique in the fact that you've survived, you've come through it, and you've changed your life for the better, and you help others change theirs, right? That's, that's always the goal. I have found that even in my darkest moments, None of us are truly ever alone. And being able to find access to people who are going through similar things really does help build strength. You know, that it's it, because of your journey, I think that um, you have taken an opportunity to um, kind of spread more positivity in the world. We need so much more. I'm just a small little light, but I hope I can shine nice and bright for those that need it. Well, I know we're going to talk about your book, but let's talk about your life a little bit first and find out kind of where you came from and how you got to writing that book, because what I've read of it so far is an amazing, it's an amazing journey. So let's get started at the beginning. Where were you born? Uh, well, I'm native to Arizona. Um, I live about 20 minutes from where I grew up. So I've been here my whole life. I am the oldest of five and was sufficiently tasked with raising the youngest. Uh, I'm from a blended family. Uh, we really don't have much communication, and that seems to suit the narrative that I need just fine. Um, growing up, we we were very, we struggled with income, and we struggled with stability um, until my mother met her current husband. We kind of bounced from relative to relative, and I was the food stamp kid, and we were the, the, the welfare line kids. Um, they got together, and our Security came in the form of a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment for seven people at any given time. So having space and privacy and the ability to develop and grow as a unique individual was very stifling. Uh, school was my favorite escape. And if it had been up to me, I just would have lived at school because it was a safe place. And when I couldn't be at school, I would run. 
And that's actually why I'm recovering from surgery right now, so that I can get back to running because it's my safe space. Now, running is. Growing I, oh. I'm sorry. No, so go ahead. Oh, I was, was going to ask you. So, do you have any brothers or sisters? I am. I'm the oldest of five. Oldest of five. So, it, yeah. uh, you, you have both brothers and sisters. Yeah. So one sister, three brothers. Um, we all still live here in Arizona. We just don't really see each other. Um, growing up, we we were kind of pitted against each other because we had different parents and. It was never a happy, loving, caring kind of home. There was there was always a lot of anger and frustration and fuel on a fire that was never snuffed out. You know, it's that's that's unfortunate. It makes it, it makes for like you said earlier in your book and what you've said in your notes and what I've seen is a very toxic environment. So let's talk about your childhood. What was your family like? Uh, well, my my mom has some mental health issues and some substance abuse issues. Um, she's she's very emotionally manipulative. Um, she was very good at telling me growing up that the things that I remembered or recalled from traumatic events didn't exist. So this this timeline of my growing up, I'm repeatedly being told those things didn't happen. But you're making that up. That's not real. And so you you have really no basis of foundation of okay, well. If I think these are the things that happened, if these traumatic instances happened, but you're telling me that they didn't, how do I know what's real? And just this existence of living on eggshells as a child when you're trying to develop, you know, where you fit in the world and what your relationship is to other adults and it just being this, this facade. And there's always that fear that you're going to crack the wrong eggshell and there'll be an explosion. So it's it's a landmine of development, and then you throw in, you know, poverty and not fitting in with your peers because you're the poor kid. Um, you know, you get picked on, you get teased a lot. Uh, I was really athletic, and gay acceptance wasn't a thing back in middle school, so I was called a lesbian because I liked track and basketball. Um, you know, slut shaming became a big thing in high school, which is just the most god awful thing to ever happen to a poor teenage girl, um, because it doesn't matter what you say. Yeah, that label has been affixed to you, whether you've earned it or not, and so that will carry through with you. You know that it's unfortunate. Um, in my previous career, obviously, I dealt with it as a father. I have dealt with it uh, with my own kids. The bullying creates an environment that's a negative and toxic environment all in its own. No, aside from anything, and if you grow up in a, dare I say, a dysfunctional family in regard, which I understand 100%, I grew up with a dysfunctional family myself, both my parents were alcoholics, it it just compounds upon each other. So I know that, you know, in your book and in, my, in the opening, uh, you talk about um, kind of hating yourself. Did you, because of those environments and that situation, how did that come up? I didn't know who to blame, so I would just blame myself because I, I didn't ask for those things. I didn't ask to be bullied at home. I didn't ask to be bullied at school. Or I, I didn't have anywhere to put that feeling other than on myself because I didn't have really anybody else to reach out to or a lifeline or an adult in my life who knew what was going on and said, hey, someone needs to intervene on your behalf. So I, I sort of just walked the path alone. So I just 
I had all this hatred at myself because I didn't know how to get out of that situation. But being a child, I didn't even have means. Yeah, I did your... And again, if we, if we get to, to a point where there's something that you... that kind of touches a nerve, please understand. I, I'm, I'm okay with... No, open book. That That's why I wrote it. Outstanding. Um, so you, in, in some situations, siblings band together. In some situations, siblings turn out and take sides. Some situations, they all just go different directions. You know, did any of those situations occur where it compounded what was going on at home in your Oh, band? absolutely. Um, so three of my siblings were part-timers. So they were in and out with us depending on whether or not their mom had custody at any given moment. So there's constantly this influx of, oh, we have three more mouths. Now we don't have three more mouths. Now we need to make space for three more bodies. There's not enough space for three more bodies. So three of you were going to share a room for the interim. Uh, we were constantly pitted against each other because I was the only one. And then there were three. And then they decided to have another one. And because I was the only one that was around full time, that became my responsibility. So I was raising a child while being a child. I went from eight years old and no siblings to I now have four other people that I'm partially responsible for for some reason because I've Yeah, unfortunately I think that comes with individuals that are parents that are that have alcohol or drug issues. Uh, I saw it in my own childhood and I've seen it in my work in the past. And um, those are traumas that we carry with us for a lifetime even though we can work past them and work through them like like you have been doing, uh, like I did, and like you know, several thousands or millions of other, others are working through those things. It's still kind of a difficult journey. At what point in your life did you recognize that that um, this was creating some type of a well, mental health issues? So when I was the senior before my high school senior year, that summer before I was a junior, my mom was going in for triple bypass heart surgery she's in for help because of things that she chose to abuse and she pulled me aside and she said if i die your brother's your responsibility no matter what happens he's yours and to be 17 and working a part-time job and thinking this is my senior year i'm gonna be done it's gonna be great life is amazing because i'm gonna graduate i'm gonna go to college Oh, by the way, if I die, you're now responsible for another man. All on your own. Good luck. It's a lot. And that that seemed to be the the card that made the collapse and the the hatred and the anger and the the desire to just leave as fast as I physically could. I moved out the day after graduation. Like I was done, ready to go. I was not prepared for what the real world had for me, and I had to turn tail and come back. But I. I just wanted out. I wanted to be able to have space to breathe. And is that the only trauma you experienced within? I mean, there's a lot of trauma to experience. But uh, you talk about childhood trauma. A, a lot of that stemmed from my biological parents and their very violent and toxic separation. Um, my stepdad and my biological dad were at one point friends and they were this, this wonderful foursome of friends who smoked weed and threw shoes at their kids and, you know, really didn't want a parent. They wanted to party. And so 
in kindergarten is when my biological parents separated. And that was a very traumatic, very physical blowout. I was locked in a car. I remember picking and screaming at the car, trying to be let out because I was afraid my mom was going to get hurt. I was five. And so that, that mental image and that event, I can, I can take you to the physical location. It's 22 minutes from my front door. It's, it sticks with you. And it's this tumor that just takes all of the little joy that you can eventually gather. And it just puts a chokehold on it because you start to question, am I allowed to have joy? Am I allowed to feel happy? Because nothing else has been happy. Why should I be entitled? Yeah, and really, then you're just angry all over. It, it, um, it's a very unfortunate opportunity for a child and you should be, like you said, happy. You should be reaching for the stars. You should be worried about playing and and having friends and going going to sleepovers and you know the normal childhood stuff. What society calls the normal childhood stuff. But those of us that have grown up in an environment that doesn't allow for the quote unquote normal environment, it's difficult sometimes to kind of grow out of that or to even recognize that we're within a situation that is not our fault. So it, I'm sure you're still working through some of those traumas. I can, I mean, I, and I understand that you might still be working through some of those. Yeah, I, the, the ones that were really holding me back, I've, I've worked through with a therapist and we've, we've done the legwork to make peace with them. Some of them are still probably buried and I don't know if they'll ever make their way to the surface but I have to be aware of those symptoms and I have to be aware of when I'm noticing that shift, that something is working its way out. And I understand that. Yeah. It's, it's a journey. I mean, it's, it's a hell of a journey. So did you, uh, when you were a kid, did you have any aspiration? Did you want to go to college? Did you want to be somebody? Um, I know they turned to photography now. So what do you want so to do? So I was a theater geek in high school. Um, it's funny that you ask about, you know, aspirations and dreams. When I was in fourth grade, I applied to the Fashion and Design Institute because I thought college would be this great escape, and I loved designing wedding dresses, which is funny that I work in weddings. Um, but I was, I was going to run off and go to college when I was in fourth grade, and I was just going to leave all of this mess behind because education was going to be my escape. And they were lovely people, and they emailed, or they wrote me a letter back before email and said, you know, we love that you are so driven and motivated. Come back and see us when you're older. But thank you. I had dreams, and then my mom got sick. And I decided that I needed to save her, because that's what you do as a child. You think your parents are infallible, and they have to be rescued when there's trouble. And I was going to swoop in and save the day. And so I went and I studied medicine, and I was really good at it but it's not where my heart is. And so after dedicating seven years of my life to medicine and realizing that I wasn't <laughs> gonna save someone who didn't wanna be saved, I took that as an opportunity to go and find my true passions. And so I picked up a camera and I got a business degree and I now own an event venue and my son comes to work with me and life is so much better. I still love medicine. If I could go back, and try it again. I don't know. I think I'm almost 40 now, so I don't know if I want to try that at 40, but I could. 
could. I totally could. Absolutely. I went back to university at 50 years old. I was one of the, in fact, I was the only, oldest graduating individual in my class at ASU. They actually had me carry the flag up front at the procession because I was the old guy. <laughs> when I graduated from ASU, I was eight and a half months pregnant. So I skipped that one. But that was my second college degree. So I didn't feel so bad about skipping that. It, it's, uh, this works. See, so we didn't, <laughs> unbeknownst to us, we're alumni. There you go. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, it, sometimes those kind of childhoods, unfortunately, take over the, um, the joy of planning a future. I felt like so much of my future was dictated by the fact that this person that I felt obligated to could die at any moment. And so I rushed into college and I rushed into a marriage and I rushed into having a baby. And while I wouldn't go back and change those things because I love my husband dearly and my son is the best thing that I've ever created. I missed out on a lot. I didn't get to be a kid and I didn't get to be a teen and I didn't get to be a young adult because I thrust myself into, I have to have all these life experiences before she goes. And then I resented her. Yeah, it creates a, it does create, it's kind of a, it's kind of a circle, unfortunately. Absolutely. In that regard. So you talk about, you talk about married, you talk about getting married early. So you have a husband. Yes. Where'd you guys meet? <laughs> we met online back before meeting online was acceptable. So we told people that we met at the grocery store. Um, well, it's kind of. But we met online. That's in I line. Was actually, yeah, well, in line, online, close enough. Exactly. Um, I was actually doing a temporary stint at U of A. And he was working at an engineering firm. And on a whim, I messaged him. And I said, just have lunch with me. It may be the best thing that ever happened. It was very egotistical, um, overly confident. And so he waited and waited and waited, and he almost bailed and didn't get in touch with me until like two hours before we were supposed to meet. And we've been inseparable ever since. At three days, we told each other, I love you. At nine months, we moved in. At 13 months, we had a wedding. And then 13 months after that, we had a baby. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> First comes marriage, then comes, I forgot that song completely, actually. So at, at what point did you, um, if we can kind of evolve into that, I know that yeah. uh, in your book, you talk about uh, your marriage starting to crumble and, you know, you had some issues with some friendships that were built on lies and so forth. Um, do you think uh, up until that point that you had, uh, did it, was any of that, evolving out of uh, uh, mental health challenges like depression or anxiety oh absolutely i was actually diagnosed with depression severe depression and anxiety um two months before we got married i had a nervous breakdown at my bachelorette party um that was so much fun let me tell you um i was on the floor of the hotel swinging back and forth crying hysterically because i couldn't make everybody happy and I lost it. I snapped. And it was the scariest thing that I hardly remember. Um, so I immediately got on meds. And, you know, for some people, antidepressants are great. Some of us, we experience the full gambit of side effects. So here I am getting ready to be a hot newlywed. And I have no sex drive because of my effects. Uh, so that's a great confidence boost going into a marriage. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it kind of puts a little damper. Um, but I have an amazing husband, and he said, "Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. We'll get through it. Don't worry about it." Um, and eventually we did. We eventually, you know, figured out ways of making things work. Um, the the biggest problem I had was that I didn't know who I was, and so I I brought a blank canvas into a marriage and went, well, I'll just paint this one the way he wants. And then I had a canvas in front of my friends and I said, well, I'll just paint this one the way they want. But I was never happy because it was never authentic. I was so afraid that I needed to be somebody else because why would people like me? Why, why would they like someone who was hurting and depressed and angry all the time? Now, can I ask you this? You said you have other brothers and sisters. There's a five. Are you yes. somewhere in the middle, like the middle child? I am the oldest. You're the oldest. Because I know that in some environments, um, and some psychologists say this, but uh, I know that from personal experience and from both my job and professionally, or excuse me, personally and professionally, um, middle children usually have the, I want to take care of. It's either the oldest child or the middle child. It's always, I need to take care of this. I need to fix this. And it's a syndrome that kind of follows those of us are with that within that arena throughout our lives. I have to fix it. I have to fix it. I have to fix it. It's me. It's my responsibility. I have to fix it. Um, do you, is that kind of, you think you kind of fit within that realm? I think because my mom was so young when she had me that growing up watching her struggle, I always, I just adopted this mentality that I have to fix whatever's wrong with my mom make her better because she was all I had and so it just sort of became this indoctrinated well when mom is sick because she's not feeling well you're going to take care of her you're just going to pick up the piece where mom left over so I was the mini mom of everybody so you, you said you had been diagnosed with mental depression or you know were you treated for it did they give you medication I was, I, I was. so I had um, a general practitioner who gave me effects or uh, took about six months of really, you know, adjusting and dialing it in to where I was actually functional. Uh, I was very sick the first six months getting onto medication. Um, about three years after my son was born, I was actually diagnosed with PTSD. And that was the light bulb moment for my mental health because it, it wasn't just depression and it wasn't just anxiety. It was, no, there's a reason why these behaviors I've adopted because I'm waiting for the next app. It's coming. I know where it's going to come from. I just have to be ready. You know, they, they talk about how police officers sit with their back up against the wall so they can survey. That was me. I was always happy as safest on the floor, up against a wall. I could see everything in front of me. I mean, I eventually adopted it as a superpower. As a photographer, I need to be able to see an entire scene and process it immediately. So, you know, I always I put the word, oh, yeah, it's my superpower. That's just my way of dealing with it. It sucks. It's not a fun life expecting a threat at every turn. You know, but it, you learn to work with it. If I can interject with something, PTSD is not just from soldiers being in combat. It's not just from police officers and firefighters and EMTs and doctors and nurses. Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anybody that's had any traumatic event within their lifetime that has caused a significant impact on how they function in life or how they deal with 
and manage daily activities. So PTSD, and that comes from an individual that also has PTSD from my profession and my childhood. So just for the record, not a doctor, somebody that was diagnosed with it, somebody that understands it from two different perspectives. It can be any traumatic event within your lifetime that causes a significant impact on your life. So, Jack, if you don't mind me saying, I, I would like to, anybody that's listening out there that, you know, if you are experiencing anything like that, you yourself need to go talk to somebody. A hundred percent, because it doesn't require traditional medication. It's a multifaceted disorder and it requires intervention and it requires adaptability and not only medication, but behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. Because it does, your body feels like it's constantly in a war zone and it's exhausting. Yeah, it's it's something that I'm sure play an impact on your marriage and, and your children and everything, everybody around you, actually. Without me knowing, I'm sure it played a huge role in how my relationships developed and, and the faults that were in them and the work that I had to do so that I could have healthy, functional relationships. So you talk about, in part of your book, you talk about, we keep talking about this book and we're going to eventually get to it. Um, it's comfortably uncomfortable. We're going to go a little more in depth into it, but in there you talk about your marriage kind of crumbling around you. Was that, do you think, based upon upon everything kind of culminating at one point within your whole environment? The, so the best way to describe it would be a snowball. And basically what started out with this little pebble with a nice little layer just kept rolling and rolling and rolling down the hill. And it eventually rolled over the top of us. Um, when I met my husband, I was looking to check mark a list of requirements of who I thought I needed as a spouse. Uh, growing up with an unstable relationship, for an example, I wanted security. So I didn't fall in love with him because he was handsome and he made me happy. I fell in love with him because it was security and I would never have to live the life that I grew up in. I wouldn't have to raise my children in that type of environment. That's not a marriage me. Um, I was awful as a wife. And I was a terrible partner because I was gaslighting and I was angry and I, I felt like I had cheated myself. And by cheating myself, I was taking it out on everyone around me, most especially my spouse. Um, it wasn't until, you know, he, he told me he wanted to file for divorce and he was done fighting because I wasn't putting in the effort that I really just went, I'm the problem. This is all entirely me because if I could just be happy with who I was and love myself, I could totally see the fact that everything that you've ever done for me has been out of love, not because you felt some obligation. That's a brilliant, that's a brilliant perspective, actually. It was a hard one to get to. I said it was a hard one to get to. It was hard to have that realization that I was a shitty spouse, and it was entirely my fault. You know, it it huh. coming from an individual that worked a domestic violence task force for quite some time, and growing up in a dysfunctional family, and seeing divorce as a natural thing, 
um, I commend you for pushing through and realizing that and for recognizing that and being able to, uh, both you and your husband, being able to stick with it and kind of grow from it and move forward in life because there are so many countless other other individuals that don't actually reach that point in their marriage or their relationship. He's always seen the perspective that I, I had potential and that I could be happy. He just had to wait until I got there. And the fact that he was willing to be patient, he's a saint. What kind of steps did you take to learn to be happy and to learn to manage your depression and your anxiety? So I started out with regular talk therapy, which was fine, but it's, it's kind of like going to church. You know, you, you go for an hour once a week and you pretend to practice what you preach and then you go back next week and you really haven't made a lot of progress. Um, so I, I didn't put too much weight into that. Uh, what I did end up doing was finding a life coach and it was because I didn't have a lot of life skills outside of, you know, looking like a functioning adult. Uh, I needed someone who was going to stay on top of me and someone who I had immediate access to. And I do understand just how financially blessed I am that I could afford someone that I could have on speed dial and go, I'm having a crisis moment. I'm paying you. So you're going to answer and help me through this. My life coach was great because he basically broke it down to where every day I was building this foundation of a happy, whole person. And finding that happiness didn't have to be conquering the world. It could just be getting all the laundry done and put away in a single day. And that was something to be proud of. And so realigning perspectives was really important with that. Um, I also did dialectical behavioral therapy. Uh, dialectical behavioral therapy is great because basically what it does is it helps you manage your emotions as you function as an adult in the world. And for someone who has PTSD and anxiety, I had no emotional regulation. I was, I sort of flew off the handle, but only behind the scenes. And so every interaction was a, a combatant and a threat. And I was always having to be ready for battle. And that's not a life lived. So basically, I had someone who went and broke down every single interaction I would have and go, okay, this is where you lost control, but you lost control because of these things, and those things aren't actually really happening. So we've got to get to the root of that thought. That's, an, that's a brilliant counselor, actually. I mean, there's so many people out there, unfortunately, they're getting coaching, life coaching certifications offline, and they really don't know what they're doing with life coaching. And yeah. that's a brilliant perspective and, a, and an amazing way to help somebody work through where they're at and where they need to be. It, it was that level of accountability with Dennis, my life coach, but also having a, a licensed therapist who had this program who went, okay, you're going to have to have a conversation. Let's dialogue this conversation out. And we're going to write down all the things that are going to pop into your head that are going to sabotage it. And we're going to squash them. And then you're going to go have that conversation. That was critical for me because I couldn't get through difficult things without just falling apart. Yeah, you know, communication, people talk about communication and the communication is the key to success in anything. In reality, communication is more effective when we could communicate with ourselves first. Yes, and, and removing the prejudices of, I don't think this person likes me or I'm not going to get the outcome that I want or... Everyone hates me because those, those are ideas that we've implanted and we don't have to buy those. We don't have to put stock in them. Well, and I think it, 
and correct me if, if I'm if you don't agree. I'm I'm okay with that. But societal, the societal atmosphere has allowed for the creation of what they think a person with depression is supposed to act like and what the person with anxiety is supposed to act like and what the person with PTSD is supposed to act like. When in reality, we're each individual. We may have the same type of symptoms. We may have the same type of actions or reactions as other individuals, but we are also individuals. We're not a textbook citation. We're not a paragraph in a book. Oh, I 100% agree. Absolutely. And and going through this journey, my skill set as far as managing things has evolved and changed. You know, what used to be a meltdown is now I'm going to go take a quick time out for 10 minutes and listen to some music, and then I'm going to come right back to this, and we're going to finish this. Your, Your mental health is a constant evolution if you're working at it to improve it. So it's not going to look the same even day-to-day, let alone person-to-person. Well, I, yeah, I agree with that. Do you believe in, do you journal? Well, that was actually what my book was. <laughs> my, my book, Comfortably Uncomfortable, The Road to Happiness Isn't Always Paved, was a journaling experiment of everything that I went through from my rock-bottom moment to my, hey, I'm a pretty cool person. This is a pretty good life and I'm doing okay. But now that I've done this, I got to tell people, I want everybody else to feel this good. So I I started writing and I I love writing. Like I said, I was a theater geek in high school. Art and writing and creating are my my happy spot. Um, And it just, it flowed freely. It was this verbal diarrhea of everything that I was going through. and, And I was writing them in real time moments and going, you know, there's got to be more than just me that feels this way. Can I help them? How can I help them? This will help. It's, it's a small book because big books intimidate me. Um, and it's a quick read because life is busy. <laughs> it is a quick read. And, and I, truth be told, I had a feeling it was journalism. Journaling, not journalism. It's, well, it's both. <laughs> but journaling. So my, my investigative proudness. Kind of you did a good detective. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's very much journaling. Um, you know, I've I've put four years of my life into this small text of if I can do it, you can do it too. Because I'm not a celebrity. I don't have unlimited funds. I don't have a team of handlers. I put in the work myself and I promise you if you want it, it's there for you. Well, and again, in all honesty, I haven't read it completely, but I have read about half of it, and I can testify the fact that it is very well written, it is compelling, and it does tell your story, and it tells a a journey of you evolving, of what you've been through, and and, uh, the fact that you're reaching for goals. Do you believe in meditation? I do. Uh, I actually actively use meditation to manage my anxiety. I think it's a very, my family uses meditation on a regular basis. We learned it a long, long time ago. Um, it has helped us through many things, not just mental health, but uh, even through my seven surgeries. Meditation has helped me to manage my pain and to manage my physical therapy aspects before and after and uh, kind of relax when I was having bad days in regard to it. 
I believe in meditation 100%. It's, it's not a tool that I think people would immediately reach to expecting immediate relief. But if you can find, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Michael Seeley. He's on YouTube. Uh, his nighttime meditations are great to help me kind of shut it off if it's been a long day. Um, there's, there's a handful of free resources out there. And that's what's great about it is that it's absolutely free. And if you're willing to just try, it's an exercise. It's just like building biceps. You have to do it over and over and over again to get the benefit. But it's, it's attainable and it's free and it's easy and it doesn't require you to really extend yourself. You just kind of be. Absolutely. What, what other methodologies do you use to help manage your um, depression, your anxiety, and your PTSD? Uh, so I actually just recently got off my antidepressant after 16 years. Uh, so that's been an adventure in itself. Um, but I do a lot of symptom awareness, you know, being cognizant of, okay, my heart rate is elevated. Why is it elevated? My anxiety is high in this moment. What is, you know, identifying root triggers for anxiety, um, you know, with depression, if I'm noticing it, what's, what's the underlying cause of it? Am I spending too much time scrolling on my phone? Am I listening to the news? You know, things that will just bring those things to the surface that don't have to be. And I find those triggers and eliminate. Uh, exercise is my favorite way of managing. Uh, I go to the gym two to three times a week. I'm super active. I skateboard and I paddleboard and I love to run. Um, exercise has always been a therapy for me, even when I didn't realize it was a therapy. And so it's, it's my way of coping. Which is a good thing. I mean, exercise obviously creates endorphins, and endorphins help create happiness, and happiness helps create a more positive environment for us all the way around. Now, I'm going to backtrack just for a second, if I can, please, because I wanted yeah. to touch upon something prior to, to you getting to that point. Yeah, um, yeah. You stated that uh, at one time in your life, you, you came to a point where you almost committed suicide, or you tried yep. to commit suicide. Yep. When, when did that happen, and, and what stopped you? Uh, it was, it'll be six years in January. Um, I'm actually able to look at the spot where I was preparing to hang myself. Um, the thing that stopped me is in the other room and he's 14 and knowing that I couldn't give him the full story or a full narrative or show him that I could survive was the only thing that kept me from going through with it. Well done to well done to both of you. Actually, that's motivation in our lifetime allows us. Certain people within our lifetimes are motivations that allow us to move forward in life. I needed to break the cycle of trauma and abuse, and I couldn't do that if I wasn't here to fight. And so I pulled up my big girl panties and started fighting because there's a little boy upstairs who needed his mom. Outstanding. That's very, very well done. Well done. Well done. I really, um, I think that um, the people within that situation or have even been close to that situation don't quite understand how close somebody can actually come before they pull themselves out of that situation and what the consequences could have been. And it's, you know, do you, you feel that that's like the lowest point in your life and that's how you you decided to kind of change everything? If I couldn't pull it together from him, what was the point of being here? 
Yeah, it's a great motivation. I had, I had to be able to show him that there was more than mental illness and trauma and abuse in, in our life, that we could, we could strive for more, we could be better and do better. And I have this really unique opportunity because I get to do it in real time because he's old enough to understand without being explicit. And I can show him that by doing all of these things and adapting to all of these behaviors and habits that he doesn't have to have the same life that I have. He can, he can have better because he can see what that looks like. That's, that's very good. Is that what kind of helped you, inspire you to, um, I know you were dark on yodeling and you turned that into, I know you had a blog. You've got a blog on your website now um, as well, correct? Uh, no, it's not so much a blog as I just, I, I have a catalog of, of podcasts that I've been on. Okay, my apologies. I thought that was that's a okay. blog. Um, the, either way, it's still a, it's still a documentation of, of your journey, your conversations, and what you bring back to the world in a very positive way. Yeah, I, basically what I've tried to do is I've tried to make it so that I'm accessible without limitation. Um, obviously, when people reach out, my goal is to help them the best I can or direct them to help that's available. Um, I use Instagram as a way to be very transparent with my struggles and have access to resources for people that are struggling. You know, we, we talk about health and mental improvements and, you know, my struggles and when I fall because I still trip and fall and I get back up and I dust myself off and go, look, you can do it too. I can do it. You can do it. We're not alone. There's always someone there. You just have to look for them. Look for the helpers. Well, and that's, that's a good thing, especially in those around you. You got to make sure that you recognize those people around you that are helping to support you through whatever you're going through, because those people are doing it not because they feel sorry for you, not because they pity you. They're doing it because they love you. Plain, plain and simple, um, or they wouldn't be there. So, the book, this book. Let's talk about the book. Okay. Okay, I know we talked a little bit about it. We've touched upon it. We've given away a few little secrets, but it's called Comfortably Uncomfortable. What a unique title. Because every step of this was so uncomfortable, but when I was finally done, I was okay with who I was in, in this sack of flesh that I existed. And it was sack really flesh. pretty. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, that's all we are. We're carbon. We're stardust. So you might as well like the stardust that you're in. There you go. <laughs> this works. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? I wrote the book in 18 months. That's pretty good, actually, for writing a for writing a book. I have the most amazing cheerleader who's upstairs on a Zoom call with his friends. Um, he thinks that I am magic, and I will do everything <laughs> in my power to continue to propagate that belief. Um, he was great, you know. How many words did you write today, Mom? I didn't see you writing. Were you writing today? What chapter are you on, Mom? Now that's a coach. How can, <laughs> how can you not be motivated and want to succeed when you've got a cheerleader like that? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. That's cool. That's very cool, actually. Our kids, super you know, cool. our kids are a, a valuable gift to us and an asset to our livelihood, our lives, in such a very positive way. Um, I've got two daughters and. I try to do everything that I can to make sure that they move forward in life in a very good way and that they never experience anything that I experienced when I was a child. And it sounds like you had done the same thing. A hundred percent. It does make childbearing difficult, though, because 
the expectations and norms don't exist. So there's this fun dynamic of, is this normal because of how I was raised or is this normal because I want things to be normal? There's a lot of questioning in the parenting of, you know, is this a reasonable expectation based on my upbringing or is it unreasonable because I was forced to have that? You know, and I, yeah, it's a good question. It it, it might have to make me stop and think about a few things. Um, Because sometimes we get on automatic mode and automatic mode kind of takes over a little bit and and we kind of have to put the brakes on and go, wait a minute, why was I doing that and what for? Is this really going to benefit him or am I just being a jerk? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, So... You, you loved writing. You're now an author. How does I, it feel to have a published book? That's really cool. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not something that I thought was in my wheelhouse. And the more I put into it, the more I found that I absolutely loved it. And people love my voice. They love my writing, uh, which, you know, you're never going to turn down a, an ego boost for a positive thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's fun. I'm actually, I've started the development of book two. And as he continues to grow older, I've got the companion for comfortably uncomfortable coming together. It's comfortably uncomfortable parenting, surviving the teenage years. There you go. Uh, because I think we really do a disservice to our teenagers by not having uncomfortable conversations with them that will serve them better later in life. Exactly. May I, are you still married? I am. And how does he feel about having an author in the family? He's a lot like his, his child and that anything I set my mind out to, they support, which is insane that I have that circle in my home. Yeah, that's a good so, thing to have. So, you know, it's, to them, I don't think it's as big a deal, but to me, it's, it's monumental. I, I agree with that. I, I do. How important is it to make every moment count? What's the point of doing them if they're not going to count? That's the thing, the best answer I've gotten from that question, actually. <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I mean, like that. not every moment's a good moment, but if, at least if you can walk away saying, I gave it what I could, and I'm satisfied with what I put into it, it's still not a bad moment. You know, if people, people, people who go, go out and try something, they're afraid to try something because they think they're going to fail, don't understand that that failure is a learning lesson to move failure forward. Failure is part of the process. Exactly. Ali didn't become who he was by not getting knocked out a few times. Exactly. You got we to, didn't start perfect. Yep. We're never perfect. We're a process. You have to fail in order to learn what not to do. Exactly. And how to build better upon what you do do. Now, I'll have to give credit to my sensei when I was practicing Aikido and Qigong. That came from him, but Franklin was very wise. We'll put it that way. He was very wise. Do you have a spiritual perspective on it all? No, I I don't really prescribe to the idea of a spirit. I think I think things work out the way they're meant to. Um, I think that we have a lot of autonomy that we don't embrace because we're afraid of it. But I think we are wholly responsible for what we accomplish in this world. And whether you, you achieve it or not is 
based on what you're willing to put out into the universe. Very true. Very true. Let's talk about how to get in touch with you and find your book and your events. Yes. So Comfortably Uncomfortable is available on your Kindle or e-reader through Amazon.com. You can order it in print uh, if you're old school like me and prefer a print book. Or if you're just busy and you don't mind the sound of my voice, I will actually read it to you on audible.com. Uh, that was a super fun process and I really enjoyed it. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Grown Up Growing Pains, where I will show you all the tools and tricks and tips that I know to get through this thing called adulting. And I will be honest and transparent and I will show you my struggles and my falls and my successes. And I hope that in moments of need, you reach out because I am here, because there are plenty of people that care about you and love you and want you here and want you to be successful and happy in whatever that looks like. So don't be afraid to reach out. There's always someone available. That's amazing. I will have to make sure that I have everything in the show notes uh, that you know, on how to contact you. You can take a screenshot of the YouTube um, video here as well, but I'll make sure that everything's in the show notes so people have easy access on how to find you and your book. Um, again, I've started reading it. It's a very good book. It's very inspiring. It's very motivational. It's a really good thing to go out and buy. So this is one more thing before you go. Is there anything, any words of wisdom you have for anyone in regard to what their journey may be going through before we go. Before I go, just know that even on your hardest days, your worst days, if you give of yourself, you are still successful. Regardless of the percentage you gave, if you gave of yourself that day, you were successful. That's very profound words of wisdom. I think that um, it is a situation that um, I think they need to look you up and they need to buy your book and I think they need to pay attention to what they have around them and be very grateful and kind of move forward in life in a very positive way and you can help them do that. So thank you very much for joining us on One More Thing Before You Go. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here to share your journey and to allow me to learn from you as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I do always hope that I inspire someone to reach out even when it's big and scary. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.